This morning, we are going to conclude our little four-part sermon mini-series entitled Putting Some Pop in Your Prayer Life. And just a quick note for those of you that are here who may not have been able to be here for the full series and would like to be, um, the previous three lessons are available through both the church's website as well as through our Facebook page, and probably by tomorrow noontime, this one will be there again as well. So we will have that full four sermons up. Putting some pop in your prayer life, as you know, we've been using the acronym P-O-P during this past two Sundays, three sermons. We have taken a look at the priority of prayer, the passion of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the peace of prayer, the power of prayer, the piety of prayer, the privilege of prayer, the persistence of prayer, and the patience and protection of prayer. As you may recall, we left off last Sunday morning talking about pop number 10, the protection of prayer. And we were talking about 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. If you want to turn there, that would be good. We were talking about 2 Kings 18 and 19, where King Hezekiah was being mocked. He was being ridiculed, and he was being threatened with annihilation by King Sennacherib of Assyria and King Sennacherib's far superior military forces. Now, it is true, as I said at one point, can't get everything in here about prayer and certainly all of these lives in just, in just four sermons, but... It is true that King Hezekiah had previously rebelled against the king of Assyria and refused to serve him. But it also bears noting that after that point, King Hezekiah also went on to humbly apologize and he paid a terribly high price of restitution. We would note that from 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 7 through 16. <clears throat> but, as is often the case, such apology and restitution was still not enough for the angered party. And we see this again with King Sennacherib in 2 Kings 18, verse 17, through chapter 19 and verse 13. And so, even though Hezekiah had apologized and paid a price, King Hezekiah was sent a letter by the king of Assyria demanding his unconditional surrender. Last week we looked at how King Hezekiah upon receiving that letter immediately went up to the house of the Lord and entered into humble, faithful, wholehearted prayer and how the Lord responded to him in verses 35 through 37. But you know, this wasn't anything new for King Hezekiah. Such a trust in God's faithfulness, in God's protection, this wasn't a one-time thing with him. This was who he was. This is who he had been, a humble, faithful, pious, and righteous servant of God for a number of years. We would note this from 2 Kings chapter 18. Look with me here, beginning at verse 2. It says of Hezekiah, he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did, I mean, this is who King Hezekiah was. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, 
according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. <clears throat> he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He didn't depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Then notice this, because of it, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. Remind you of somebody else? Remind you maybe of Joseph and how the Lord was with Joseph because Joseph was very faithful as well. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And so we see here that Hezekiah was not just a man who practiced prayer in time of need. He relied on God all the time. He was faithful. And, and as we continue this morning with the protection of prayer, number 10, overlap from last week, I'd like for us to consider a second example of King Hezekiah's prayers and see how God's protection was afforded him again because of his humble prayers. In 2 Kings chapter 20, look at me at the first six verses. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And he turned his face toward the wall, and he prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. We talked this morning in the adult class about walking in truth, mean walking according to the word of God. He said, I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart. God, I've been loyal to you, and I've done. He didn't just talk about it. He did it. He acted. He followed. He obeyed. He says, I've done what is right in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. That's a phrase that we often associate with the apostle Peter when he denied the Lord three times, when he denied the Lord three times and went outside and wept bitterly. So he's praying to God, and Isaiah's gone in and, and told him what's going to happen. And it happened, verse 4, before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court. I mean, this was quick. That the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. God hears the prayers of the righteous brethren. Read this last week from Peter. We've seen it a number of times. God listens to the prayers of those who will listen to God's word. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Don't miss that. God sees your tears. If you're following God and you're struggling and you're in a hard place, God sees your tears. Surely, he says, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. I'll deliver you and this city. See. God doesn't just say, I'm going to add 15 years. He says, not only am I going to do that, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I'll defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And so we see that there is indeed protection 
in prayer. Now that does not mean that every time that we pray for something, that God is gonna automatically grant it because as we've talked about before, Father definitely knows best. Jesus prayed three times in the garden, but it was the Father's will and Jesus committed himself to it that he go through the cross. Aren't you glad he went through the cross? But here we see the protection of prayer, even though Jesus went through the cross, his father had a plan and Jesus is in heaven interceding for you and I. There is protection in prayer. Pop number 11 is the posture, posture of prayer. Now, why put this one in here? Well, in our religious world, some people get a little bit tenacious about Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 of lifting holy hands like that's the only way to pray. If you don't lift holy hands, if you don't lift your hands physically above your head, then you're not praying the way you ought to or you're not showing reverence or something like that. They want to take 1 Timothy 2.8 and they want to make it a physical thing, a physical requirement, lifting holy hands. So I put this one in here. What is the proper posture in order to have and adhere to if you want your prayers heard? Uh, by the way, there is one. What is the proper posture to have, indeed, if you want your prayers heard and answered? What about sitting, standing, hands folded, is there one single physical posture that is better than all of the others for having your prayers heard? And the answer is no. It's not about physical. This is the thing. There is a posture, but it's not a physical posture. For example, think about all the different physical postures of prayer in the Bible of people whose prayers God heard. The Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, fell on his face and prayed. Is it okay to get down on your face and pray? Absolutely, Jesus did it, Jesus was heard, no question about it. However, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and verse 42 bowed down and put his face between his knees to pray. Is it okay to, to sit with your head bowed so low that your face is between your knees to pray? Absolutely, because Elijah prayed and he was a righteous man, James tells us, like us. He was a man like us, and he was a righteous man, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain, it didn't for three and a half years, then he prayed it would. When Jesus, I'm sorry, when Elijah prayed that it would rain, he prayed with his head between his knees, according to 1 Kings 18.42. Right here in 2 Kings chapter 20, in verse 2, we saw that King Hezekiah, when he found out that he was going to die, he turned his face toward the wall and prayed. Do we have to pray with our face turned toward a wall? King Solomon is a really good example, and I love this one. King Solomon and his dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, rather lengthy prayer. But did you ever notice, and I'm not going to turn there, but you can mark this down and check it out for yourself. King Solomon started his prayer standing before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, verse 22. 1 Kings 8, 22. Starts out standing with his arms spread toward heaven. But at the conclusion of that prayer, 1 Kings chapter 8 still, verse 54, 
it says, and so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. At some point in the process of that prayer, Solomon went from standing with his hands up to getting down on his knees. So, if we look at all of these, we see it's not the physical posture that is important to God. Many righteous people have prayed in many physical postures and their prayers have been heard. It is not the physical, but the posture that matters is the spiritual posture of the prayer, the, the spiritual posture that he exhibits and possesses. It is not the physical possession, uh, physical position of the hands and the feet and the face that matter, but it is the spiritual posture of the heart and the soul and the mind that matters and makes a difference to God whether or not our prayers are heard. You want to you see an example of spiritual posture that is everything that it ought to be in order to have your prayers heard? Turn to me to Psalm 51. <clears throat> Psalm 51, David's prayer after his terrible, terrible sin with Bathsheba. David's prayer shows the proper, the one proper posture, the spiritual posture of absolute humility that one must have in order to have their prayers heard. Psalm 51, one through three, David says, have Mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Please notice, David is relying totally on God's goodness, not his own. He's relying totally on God's mercy, totally upon God's loving kindness to blot out his transgressions. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you see the contrast? In verse one, God is the one with all the tender mercy. In verse two, David is the one with all the terrible sin. He knows exactly who he is. He knows who God is. He says, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. He says, God, I know what I am. I know how worthless I am. I know, I, I know, I know what I've done. I know what a terrible, being I am. That is the posture of prayer. Look at verse 6 that we need. He says to God, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the inward, in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Verses 10 through 12, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. See, it's all about the inside. It's about the posture of the inside. That is where it, it, it all comes together. In fact, look what he says as he closes over here in verses 16 and 17, he lets God know, he said, I know it's not about physical things. He says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, this is what counts, this is what matters, this is the posture. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, these you will not despise. When we pray, it is the posture of our heart 
And we need to focus on that spiritual posture rather than the physical, else we're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We're making mountains out of molehills, molehills out of mountains. Pot number 12 is the pattern of prayer. Turn to me to Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. The pattern of prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus instructed, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Notice their inward posture, to be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Not only is their spiritual posture, pot number 11, wrong, but Jesus is teaching here the proper pattern, pot number 12. The pattern is, prayer is not something done for the eyes of the world to see. Prayer is something done for the ears of God to hear. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And again, this isn't about a physical thing. I mean, you may, I mean, you may not have a door on your room. But this is instead just focusing on the fact that prayer is a very precious, serious, special privilege that is first and foremost just between you and God. Now, I've heard of, don't do this, gentlemen. I've heard of men saying, well, I can't lead public prayer because of what Jesus, no, 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 Listen, no, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a humility of heart. And in verses seven and eight, he says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Don't say the same phrase over and 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 over the way I just did. Don't, he said, that's not gonna do you any good. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Again, repetition of the same phrases over and over and over and over and over are meaningless, which is really interesting when you consider how some folks view the next few verses as a prayer to be repeated word for word over and over and over and over and over. And this gets us into the real meat of the pattern of prayer, pot number 12. Notice the actual pattern or the outline here. Remember, Luke tells us in Luke 11, 1, that the disciples here had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so he's using this as a, a teaching method, not, not a word-for-word -word thing, but as an outline, as, as a priority outline, as it were. And notice when Jesus says in verse 9, in this manner, therefore pray, he's teaching them. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. In this verse, we see the first and top priority that should be in our prayers, that the absolute first mention 
top priority. And that is the full acknowledgement and reminder of exactly who God is, where God is, and what God is in reference to us. Right there in the first, the first thing to establish is who God is, where God is, and what God is in comparison or reference to us. Notice, our Father, that's who God is. First and foremost, if we all had the kind of dads growing up that God wanted us to have, if we all had Christ-like dads growing up, then we would understand this term, our Father, who art in heaven, we would understand the relationship, the protection, the sovereignty, all of those things. That is who God is, our Father. Notice number two, Jesus tells us where God is, in heaven. God is in heaven, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, where Christ was going to go, back to after his resurrection from the dead, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And, and, I, and I, I love this point, our Father who art in heaven, or who is in heaven. When, when you start your prayers with the acknowledgement not only of who God is, but where God is, what does that automatically symbolize to you? Where God is in heaven. It means that he is above all of the chaos, all of the pain, all of the temptation, all of the problems, all of the issues, everything that you're going to pray about, you've already established the fact that God is way above that, that God is sovereign over all of that because he is in heaven and you are going to pray about things on earth. What a beautiful peace of mind to know that God, not only who he is, but where he is, in heaven. That takes care of everything that follows. So after establishing who God is and where God is, he gets to what God is, holy, hallowed. And you're may, you may remember from last week, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, we need to recognize the holiness of God. And then number two, as we talk about the pattern of prayer, notice what Jesus goes to next. Of all the things Jesus could go to next, notice what he goes to. What he follows up with as the second highest priority behind who, where, and what God is in verse 10, what's the next thing he addresses? The kingdom. Now you might think, well, we're going to pray about stuff. It isn't usually what we pray about. Well, maybe we need to rethink some of the things we pray about. What is the next thing? The kingdom, the church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that the kingdom, the church, was established in Acts 2. We understand that. Place where God's will should be done. But, but, but the second priority is the kingdom. Do we in our prayers, do we pray about the church? Should the kingdom, the church. The church was right there amongst the top couple of priorities that Jesus had in prayer. The kingdom, the church. We should be praying for the kingdom's evangelistic efforts, for the members of the kingdom and their hurts and pains, for the strength of the kingdom, for all of these things about the kingdom. Because Jesus mentions that second. Usually we go to something else, but that's not Jesus' second priority. Jesus' third thing down on the list in this general quasi-outline, give us this day our daily bread, our daily physical needs. 
Once we prayed about the spiritual needs of the kingdom, we need to pray about the physical needs that we have. And yes, it's okay to ask God for stuff. Give us this day, God. We need our daily bread. We need our food. We need those things. It's okay. Jesus, yeah, that, that's on his list. Absolutely. Verse 12, he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Doesn't mean that it's any less important because it's got an and there. This is something that is, that is just as important as our physical survival through our daily bread, through the physical needs we have, and that is our spiritual survival, and as a part of that, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Verse 12 is very important. We need to carry out verse 12 in order to survive as much as to eat physically, verse 11. We need to be a people who thrive on not only our daily breads physically, but that we thrive on forgiving others that we might be forgiven. You know, in verse 12, of all the things Jesus could have emphasized in this short prayer, of all the different things that he could have emphasized, right here, it is incredible to me to note that he emphasized the preservation of our relationships. That's what this is. The preservation of our relationship. Listen, if you want your relationship with God preserved, then you need to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. You need to preserve relationships with your blood-bought brethren as best you possibly can from your side in order for God to maintain his relationship with you. And we're going to talk about this at length tonight. I hope everybody is back. We're going to spend a lot more time on this. Okay? But why is that so important? Because we see that it's what preserves a relationship. Listen, when Jesus gets done with his prayer, look what he immediately says in verse 14. After he gets done the prayer, he goes on to explain what he was talking about in verse 12. Verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is that pretty clear? Is that pretty fair? That's why Jesus prayed about it, because it's that important. And as I said, we'll talk about that more tonight. Verse 13, Jesus prays for deliverance from sin, Satan, and temptation last, noting that only our Father in heaven and he alone owns the kingdom and has the power to do all these things, and that God should therefore always get the glory for having the power and answering our prayer according to all of these things. This is a pattern that God gave his disciples. Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him, Luke 11:1, 1, to teach them how to pray. It's not just simply a bunch of words that we have to repeat over and over and over and over again, verses 7 and 8, but a pattern of thoughts and an outline of priorities that we should be following in our prayers. Brings us to pop 13, and that is the praise of prayer. We need to praise God. We need to praise God in worship. We need to praise God in public. We need to praise God in our prayers. We need to praise God in our songs. Is he worthy of all our prayer and praise? Absolutely. King David's beautiful prayer in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13, reads as follows. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, 
forever and ever. Do you see how he's kind of in that same line of pattern that Jesus would talk about centuries later? Verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. See how he's praising God? For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. We are here this morning to praise God. What's church for? We are to come together to encourage one another. We are to come together to praise God, to sing praise, to pray and praise him. And you know what? We should be a people that are proclaiming his praise in public too. First Peter 2 and verse 9 said that we were made God's own special people that we might proclaim his praises. And as I consider David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29.10 that I just read a few verses from, I am reminded that we have even more to praise God for than David did. We get to be children, not just the people of God, children of the living God as New Testament Christians, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. Hebrews 13, 14 and 15 says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name we must praise God in our prayers. Pot number 14. The perpetuity of prayer. And you say, what does perpetuity mean? It simply means perpetual or ongoing. Our prayers must be ongoing. The perpetuity of prayer, constant, ceasing. Listen, when do you pray the most? Do you pray the most when things are really bad and out of control? Or do you pray the most when things are really good and life is great? If you're like the majority of people, you pray more when things are tough and out of control, when you hurt, when it's bad, when bad stuff is going on, when you're low, when you're depressed. That's when most people pray. But the Bible says pray all the time. Perpetuity, all the time, perpetual. Listen, if we only pray in the times when things are bad and then God gets them good, why don't we pray to God just as much for making good where there was a bad? We ask him to take care of the bad and make it good, and then he makes it good, and we go on our way thinking, well, life is good. How about going on our way praising God because he's the one that made them good? Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, he goes on in that same chapter in Colossians 1 to say in verses 9 and 10, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding and that you may walk worthy of the Lord. They were good people. They were doing right stuff. The church in Colossae had it down, but, but Paul said, I still don't cease praying for you. Every time I pray, he said, I make mention of you, the perpetuity of prayer, the continual ongoing need for prayer. You know, it's interesting. 
If I were to ask you who one of the boldest proclaimers of the word of God was in the New Testament, how many of you amongst the top three would put the Apostle Paul? Boldest proclaimers of the word in the New Testament. Paul, Paul didn't mind talking about God, did he? <laughs> but do you know that that man, despite all the churches that he established, despite all the people that he taught, despite all of the books that he wrote, do you know that Paul actually asked people to pray for him that he'd be even bolder in his speech? Did you know that? We, we often talk about the sword of the spirit. There's a terrific, I'm sorry, not the sword, the full armor of God, including the sword of the spirit. There's a wonderful poster out here between the, the little office there and, and the preacher's office. And it shows us the full armor of God. And, and turn with me to that text for just a moment, if you would, in Ephesians 6. We often talk about the full armor of God. And we get down through the list in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. I think I made this point when I was over here doing a seminar at one point, years past. Verse 17, we get down through and we go, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And there we go, that's the end of the full armor of God or not, the sentence continues. Praying always. There's the perpetuity of prayer. With all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. That means perpetuity, ongoing. And supplication of all the saints. And Paul says to the church in Ephesus, pray and for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Listen, if the Apostle Paul could say, church, I need your prayers that I will boldly proclaim the message, then do we need each other's prayers? Does the leadership of this church need your prayers? Do all your brethren need Absolutely. If Paul could say, pray for me, I, I need it boldly. This, this perpetuity, pray for me even. Listen, we all need each other's prayers constantly. Brings us to pot number 15. We can stay right here in the book of Ephesians and back up a couple of chapters to chapter 3. Pot number 15 is the prosperity of prayer. Don't think in terms of money. The prosperity of prayer. When I say the prosperity of prayer, I mean that God, Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's why he gets the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The prosperity of prayer. Whatever you can think of. Whatever your mind can conceive needs to be the answer to your prayers. Wherever you can see yourself two years down the road, wherever in your, in your most vivid imagination you can, you can say, that's where I want to be. Listen, God's able to go way above and beyond all that you ask or think. Don't think you're going to ask for something and God doesn't have the power to give. As a matter of fact, most of the things we ask for <laughs> don't even approach what he's able to do. The prosperity of prayer would be noted in 2 Kings. I'm not going to turn there, just, just bring it up quickly. 2 Kings 3, 5 through 14, you know the text. Solomon prayed for wisdom. What did God say? Because you haven't asked for riches, I'll not only give you wisdom, but I'll give you all kinds of other stuff with it. 
Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat or drink. Seek the kingdom. God will take care of the rest. That is the prosperity or God's ability to provide in prayer. Part number 16, the perfection of prayer. Did you ever hurt so much you didn't know what to pray for? Did you ever just, you've had it? You didn't know what was right, you didn't know which end was up, you were so, so down, so depressed, so frustrated, you didn't even, you were tempted to think your prayers weren't even doing any good, and you just didn't know where to turn, you didn't know what to do, listen. It is in those times that the Bible promises Christians that their prayers are still processed and perfected to go before God. Look with me in Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, look at verses 26 and seven. It says, speaking to the perfection of our prayers, likewise the spirit helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit perfects our prayers, takes out of our hearts when we cannot groan our prayers and perfects them and brings them before him who makes intercession for us. Verses 31 says, well, what do we say to these things? What, what then shall we say to these things? Because the Spirit not only intercedes for us, but we know that when he intercedes for us, verse 28, all things work together for good for those who are Christians, verses 29 and 30. That's so magnificent, Paul says in verse 31, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? It goes on from there to talk about how in all these terrible circumstances, we're still more than conquerors. But it begins because even when we're struggling with all of those things, even when we are just struggling too much to know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes, verses 26 through 27, for us and perfects our prayers. Isn't God awesome? Brings us to pot number 17, the pardon of prayer. Obviously not talking about when we're initially washed of our sins because nobody in the Bible, in the New Testament, was ever, 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 ever saved and had their sins washed away initially by saying a prayer of faith. Never happened. Don't find it anywhere. It's not there. It's not how the process worked in the Bible. But what we do understand is that once we are Christian, once we are in Christ, once we have fellowship with God the Father, that we have the pardon of prayer when we sin. John 1, 1 through 7. Look what happens. Turn over there. 1 John talks in the first six verses about the fact that he's talking to those who are in fellowship with God, those who are walking in the light, those who are Christians. He says in verses 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Even Christians mess up. That's who he's talking to. But he says, if we confess our sins, if we tell God, if we go to God like David did in Psalm 51 and said, Lord, my sin is always before me. I know what I've done. I, I, I confess it to you and I'm relying on your grace and mercy. If we confess our sins, verse nine, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that awesome? I've heard the analogy made of 
raindrops on a windshield. And as we pray, those, those raindrops being like the sins that we commit. But God, like God, has already put a mechanism in place that is our baptism that allows us to be in Christ and allows us to have the continual ongoing forgiveness of sins like that. In our cars, there's a little switch that turns the wipers on and off. It's already, it's already there. And so as we sin and we pray to God and we ask forgiveness, it's like reaching down to turn on that mechanism that's already in place and the windshield wipers take the rain away like God is faithful and just to wipe our sins away after we have been baptized if we will but tell him and confess our sins. That is the protection of prayer. Number 18 is the promises of prayer. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, This is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 going on to tell us that all the promises of God in Christ are yes. Brethren, there's nothing quite like the promises of God, the promises of God to bring us peace when we pray. There's an old illustration entitled, It Depends on Whose Hands It's In, and I've revamped it to bring it up to date. Listen to this. What is a football worth? Well, in my hands or on the shelf at Walmart, it's probably worth about 12 to 20 bucks, depending on the brand name you buy. 12 to 20, that's what a football's worth in my hands. But in Patrick Mahomes' hands, a football is worth $502 million. It's what the contract was. 502, 503, what's a million, you know, when you're, you know, talking half a billion dollars? What is a rod worth? Well, it depends, a club, a walking stick, depends on whose hand it's in. In my hand, a rod is worth maybe a new rake handle. But in Moses' hand, it'll part the Red Sea. What's a slingshot worth? In my hand, it's worth absolutely nothing. But in David's, it'll bring down a giant and turn the course of a war. What's a couple of fish and five loaves worth? Depends on whose hand it's in. In mine, a couple of fish sandwiches. In Jesus, it'll feed thousands. And while two, three, four nails in my hands might help build a small birdhouse. A couple of nails in Jesus' hands provide forgiveness of sins for the entire world. Depends on whose hands it's in. So the point is this. Put your worst worries, your worst fears, your worst calamities and your worst concerns in the hands of Almighty God and leave them there, you can know that God is able to handle them far better than you because in his hands they can be dealt with easily while in yours they're only going to bring more depression and frustration. The promises of God tell us to place it all in his hands in prayer. Finally, these should combine to bring us 
Part number 19, and that is to provide us with the pleasure of prayer. You know, prayer should be one of the greatest pleasures we have on this earth. How many of you want to go to heaven, right? Yeah, of course you do. Why would you be here on Sunday if you don't go to heaven, right? Well, I want to go to heaven. Well, what are you going to be doing in heaven? Well, pictures I see in the book of Revelation, we're going to be praising God. We're going to be talking to God. We're going to be in the presence of God. Um, sounds a lot like prayer to me. Praising God in the presence of God, talking in that prayer. Well, if we want to go there and do that forever, then it should be a pleasure for us to get warmed up by doing it here. Prayer should be one of the most pleasurable things that we do on this entire planet. When we consider the promises of God and all of these things that we have talked about, to just get together with God in a quiet place. Listen, if you read the news or you're exposed to the news, and everybody is, everybody's got a, a cell phone at the very least, and, and all these news stories and, and people dying of all this stuff and all this anger and all this animosity and, and all this stuff in our, our personal lives and our, our private circles, and it seems like there's just problems and anxiety everywhere. Listen, to get together with the God of the universe, our Father who art in heaven, and to just shut ourselves in like Jesus said, and to just get quiet and personal and just pour it all out to God and just leave it in his hands, that ought to be one of the most pleasurable things we've ever done. And if it isn't, we don't understand what it means to have some pop in our prayer life. Brings us to the concluding text and the epilogue of our little sermon mini-series, Putting Some Pop in Your Prayer Life. Final text and epilogue, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the frosting on the cake. This is the wrap-up. Check out what God says. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, yes, good, bad, and ugly, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's what God wants you to do. Do not quench the spirit, verse 19, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil, because we know that if we're not abstaining from evil and we're not listening to God, then God's not going to listen to us. We've been over this. Then look what he says, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself. I, I love this verse. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Take that personal. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He said, you can count on God to do this. You walk with God, you, you be what God wants you to be, you do what God tells you to do, and God will do this for you. Verse 25, here he goes again, brethren, pray for us. Paul's still looking for their prayers. Even as bold as he was, he still wanted their prayers. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, verse 26. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. While that brings us to our little epilogue or conclusion scripturally, 
It also brings us to our 20th and final pop, which I haven't mentioned yet. Our 20th pop, our final pop, especially after reading that text. The one that all 19 of the others we've covered should definitely make us, the one that is alluded to in verse 25 of what we just read, and that is that all of these things should make us, pop number 20, a people of prayer. A people of prayer. In Isaiah 56, 1 through 7, God is telling about the coming of his son's one New Testament church or kingdom. And he says this. He says, Then I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. God foretold in Isaiah that his house would be called a house of prayer. You'll remember that Jesus quoted that text. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. God's house is to be a house of prayer. Being the household of God, which is the church of God, church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, means that God's house, that is us, will be a people of prayer. That's what we should be all about. And I hope that this little sermon mini-series has helped us to truly put some pop back in our prayer life. It's made me rethink my prayers. It's made me make some adjustments in my prayer life. The question is, this morning, God said his house would be a house of prayer. Are we a part of that house? Are you a part of the household of God this morning? Are you a part of the church of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth? Are you part of that? If not, the way into that is to understand who Jesus is, to be willing to confess him as Lord, to be able to repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ specifically for the forgiveness of those sins. When you do that, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it says in verse 47 that God adds you to the church. He adds you to the kingdom. He adds you to that, that group who is to be a people of prayer. If you've done that this morning, but your prayer life is limited to 30 seconds before a meal or maybe repeating the same thing over and over and over. It's just not in depth. It's not all that you know it ought to be. There's a lot of people here who are washed in the blood of Christ who would love to pray for you to make your prayer life stronger. If you need help this morning with anything, please come to the front as we stand and sing.